Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the program. Our celebration of National Poetry Month continues, and our special guest tonight is Albuquerque, New Mexico's Poet Laureate, the acclaimed Mary Oishi. Hello, Mary. Hello, Michael. I'm so happy to be with you tonight. I'm happy that you're with me, too. Let's begin our journey together. All right? All right. I'm ready. Okay. What is poetry? Well, poetry is language, which is really a sim- it's a, it's symbolic. For example, the sound tree is not a tree, okay? But but what poetry does is it uses those symbols to evoke the experience we have of an actual tree, or the experience we have of falling in love, or the experience we have of being in the room of someone dying, or the experience we have when there's tremendous joy, or the experience we have sitting by a river. I mean, whatever, the, human, the whole range of human experiences are represented in poetry. So that's what poetry is. That's not necessarily all that it does, but that's to me what it is. It's making human experience uh, more than just the symbols. It's making it real. It's like bringing the other person into the experience with the poet. You know, I can already tell that I'm going to enjoy you because that was such a (laughs) beautiful answer. It was beautiful. Thank you so much. In all the guests that I've had, I've never heard it explained that way. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, this month is National Poetry Month. Why do you think it's important that we celebrate this time? Well, it's kind of like Black History Month and Women's History Month. We should really be celebrating poetry 365 days of the year, I think, because Look what poetry did in January of last year when Amanda Gorman spoke at the inauguration. Poetry can galvanize people. It can succinctly put into words what we're all feeling. And it's just uh, such a wonderful thing. It's such a necessary thing that, that I wish it were year-round. But, yes, at least one month which means that I'm busy all month. <laughs> but, you know, that's fine. That's fine. I'm, I'm happy to be busy all month. But, uh, all right. yes, so, so I think it's important to remind people, especially in this society where everything has to be so quantified, like how, what is mm-hmm. your throughput? Well, how much do you produce in this world? Okay? So everything has to be quantified, and poetry is so much better than that. So it's good to refocus on stuff that is real. You know, when I when I uh, was named poet, or when when I was told that someone someone nominated me for poet laureate, they sent me a whole packet of 
questions and things I had to put together a huge packet, a huge document uh, for, for the committee. And one of the things they ask is, what is poetry? Uh, sort mm. of like you ask, or what is the use of poetry? And I wrote something for them that I think might help to answer why I think it's important for us to have National Poetry Month, especially in these years of the pandemic when we're so separated from each other. Um, and, and what I wrote was, poetry is our human bond, deeper than blood. Like the underground root of an aspen grove, it connects us where we all belong to each other. In a time of social distancing and isolation, poetry matters even more. Wow. Again, <laughs> an incredible statement. You're top-notch. <laughs> oh, boy. I love listening to your voice. It's incredible. Thank you for sharing with me. As you, as you think about your work, Mary, your body of work, what are some of the predominant themes? Well, my early themes came from uh, uh, my early life had a lot of trauma. And so my early themes were pretty much uh, an, an exercising of those demons, you know, those, the trauma and, and getting it out there and healing from it. And part of the trauma was that I was a half Japanese girl raised by the KKK. So I had wow. all racist messages and, and, um, and, and they were also extreme fundamentalist Christians that most people never heard of this church, but it's called the Pilgrim Holiness Church. And it, so, so I had this complete religious indoctrination, and then I had racism, and then I went to school, elementary school, in a sundown town, meaning that they didn't allow black people to spend the night by town ordinance. And I was the only person who wasn't 100% European descended who went to that school. And so there was all of that. And I grew up around my Mennonite relatives, which uh, my father was a Mennonite who ran away from home and joined world, the military during World War II, so he was excommunicated. And he met my mother during the occupation of Japan. And so um, I ended up growing up with some of his relatives and I lived in proximity, however, to the Mennonites. And my mother and father had gone all the way to California. And I was stuck in rural Pennsylvania with these very, very um, uneducated and racist people. And so um, a lot of it was, a lot of my po poetry is anti-racism. It's also <clears throat> empowering like empowering women to, because they were also sexist, of course. So empowering women, empowering people of color, calling out injustice, uh, you know, and that kind of thing. It's, it's a common theme in my poetry. But, um, but more recently, I've been writing a lot more, um, I guess you would say, like Tonka, that, that's dealing with like specific situations that I'm in. And it may allude to larger issues, but for the mm -hmm. most part, it's, it's, um, it's those things that, that I said where it really puts you in that feeling. Uh, so like I was house sitting in Santa Fe and my daughter was, was out, of, out of 
date, and so I was house-sitting for her. And um, every day there were all these birds, like, running on the roof line across the street. There were some in, sitting in the trees and all this stuff. And then one day I was worrying about, you know, the Russian troops amassed on the border. So this is a very recent poem. They had not yet invaded, okay, but one morning I was sitting there and I'd been writing haiku about these birds that were outside. And that day it had snowed a little bit and there wasn't a single bird in sight. No tweeting, nothing. And I wrote a haiku, today not one bird. Thin snow caps on everything. The hush before war. Wow. So um, that's... You know, that's that's how I, you know, I take a scene and, and try to distill it almost like a calligraphy or like a Japanese right. line painting. They don't have all the mm-hmm. detail. It's just a suggestion of the woman's face or of the, the crane or what have you. And so mm-hmm. part of my poetry is that way. Part of my poetry mm-hmm. is like almost like a Japanese line drawing. It's very stark. It's like capturing the essence of the moment or the feeling or the, the object um, in, in, in just distilled down to its most basic feeling. But much of my poetry is more like a gospel preacher because in the Pilgrim Holiness Church, these people, only one of them had even graduated from high school in the whole church. And, you know, the people who raised me went no higher than eighth grade. And so... They would stand me up in front of the church, and they'd be like, look, the little Jap can sing, the little Jap can preach. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and so, wow. you know, and, and I was taken to revival meetings and camp meetings where these, these evangelists would come, and they would have these, these very fire and brimstone sermons where people would run to the mourner's bench to repent and all of this. And so um, those cadences got in me, the cadences mm-hmm. of the preachers and the cadences of the King James Version, which, you know, is what we read of the Bible. And, you know, so I had a person tell me, I sent a a manuscript to to this uh, small poetry press, and and she wrote, she called me and she said, you know, you're like two different people. You have one voice that's completely different from the other voice. And I said, Mm -hmm. yes, I know. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. mean, there's one that's definitely harkens to my Japanese ancestors and then there's one that's the little girls, the little Japs yes. in the second to the front row and listening to the preachers. Well, that brings up a question. It sounds like from what you've shared that you've lived quite a life so far. Well, I want to go back. What was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? Uh, well, you know, actually, it probably started with with the uh, the hymns that we sang. You know, we sang very raucous gospel, and, and you mm-hmm. know, it's funny because the Pilgrim Holiness Church grew out of a movement in in the mountains of Kentucky, and it came up through the Appalachian mountain chain into West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and even up into the Adirondacks of New York. And even though I believe that the African-Americans were forbidden to practice their African religion. They were forbidden to speak their African languages. And I believe that they used Christianity 
and infused it with that kind of trance-like worship and the, you know, falling out in the spirit and all of that. And they also, when the Pentecostal ones spoke in tongues, what were they saying? They were probably speaking African languages. You know, they were allowed Mm. to, because they found permission to bring Africa to the plantations, and they did it in the churches. And I think that that's, I think that I grew up, even though they were clans people, I grew up in an Af- a quasi-African-American culture because when I would go on the gospel show when I worked at a public radio station here, and I would go on the gospel show with the gospel uh, divas and, and help them to raise money, they were amazed because I'd say, you know, pay your tithes and offerings. And I would say all the things that they say in their churches, right? And, and so, yes. uh, you know, and, and I just, but, you know, there, it was a way to reach for hope in the midst of incredible, dire circumstances. And I think that that mm-hmm. resonated with the poor white people, the coal miners. That's who I grew up like I was raised by a coal miner's daughter, and that, that's mm. how they were, too. I wrote a poem that never made it into my last book because the editor, I think, thought that, thought that I was hearkening back to my religious upbringing. She didn't understand what I was saying. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote it in response to something that was at Site Santa Fe. It was an, an exhibit, and it was Zenobia Bailey. I think she's from New York City. And she did an installation called Sister Paradise's Great Walls of Fire Revival Tent. And it was, you know, African fabrics making up this kind of revival tent. It was really cool. And so I was asked to go up and write a poem, an ekphrastic poem about one of the pieces in this exhibit. And so I chose that one because I said, oh, this gives me the perfect opportunity to address this (laughs) fact that that I saw in the Holy Rollers and the Pentecostal movement, I saw African-American worship being brought into yes. uh, Christianity. And so I wrote this. Do you want to hear this one? I'd love to hear I've it. I've never read it in public. Speaking right. in Tongues is the name of it. Hallelujah, Shalom Akuya. No African religion here. No talking drums. Jesus is the one true way. Clap, 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 clap. Clap hands, oh clap hands. Jesus is the one true way. Clap, clap, clap hands. Jesus is the one true way. Hallelujah, shalom, akuya, praise the Lord. The spirit calls, the spirit falls. Dance, dance into trance. No African religion here. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Clap, clap. Clap, clap. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. No African religion here. Jesus is the one true way. That's it. (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. What can I say? That was so powerful. So powerful. You know, I've attended many. Put it in my next. (laughs) How are we going to share? Include it in my next book. All right. I like that. I was going to share that I've attended many Pentecostal services in my time. So I know the movement. I know what happens Mm -hmm. when you speak in tongues. So I'm right there with you with that. I really am. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. You know, as a poet, 
all great writers have great writing influences. Who are some of yours, and what makes them great in your eyes? Uh, well, to be honest, I mean, from the time I was little, I was hearing some wonderful lyrics. Um, mm-hmm. Even though I don't go to church anymore, but I, I remember there was one blind songwriter named Fanny, Fanny J. Crosby, and she wrote, um, one, Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing, but oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king. Okay, so, I mean, those kind of cadences uh, meant something to me, and even in the midst of the horrors that I lived through, I, I, called, I called on music, those lyrics, and then after I left the church, I went to blues. I love the blues because it has the same kind of thing. How do you survive yes. incredible oppression, incredible uh, trauma? And, and, and they, they nailed it. They figured it out. This is what you do. You get rid of your emotions and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going on. The sun's going to shine in my back door someday. You know, so yes. I love blues lyricists too, you know, because I feel like, um, I think, you know, some of those lyrics are wonderful. Like, I walked, I walked so long the streets got tired of me. You know, what a great line. Mm-hmm. I mean, really. Mm-hmm. And so I love them. And then the next... I mean, what my ninth grade English teacher, you know, had me read things like uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay and Emily Dickinson and and E. E. Cummings and um, Carl Sandburg and all the, you know, all the kind of American literature greats, I guess, at that point. Yes. Um, and but after I after I was grown, I uh, sent a poem once in my thirties to a. A magazine and the editor wrote back and it wasn't just a rejection letter he said you know basically what he said was you aren't even a poet and I was so devastated by that I thought you know I'm just gonna write keep writing poems because I can't help myself and I'm gonna put them in a drawer and like Emily Dickinson maybe after I'm dead somebody will (laughs) find these poems and think they're worth something right but then a friend of mine gave me a book by Janice Mirakitani, and she was the poet laureate of San Francisco and a Japanese-American woman who had been in the concentration camps when she was a baby, and she wrote a lot about the aftermath of that. And I read that book, and I thought to myself, you know, that man doesn't know what he's talking about. I am, Mm -hmm. too, a poet. I'm a Japanese-American poet, you know, and and she inspired me so much. And I had the privilege of getting to know her. And, in fact, I even interviewed her on her 80th birthday, and then she passed away suddenly last year. And mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't sudden. She had cancer, but I didn't know it. She never told me. But uh, she wrote a blurb for my my last uh, poetry collection that I did with my daughter. And yes. um, you know, and we've been we've been on a few things together, a few projects together. But that kind mm. of unleashed a, a a series of tanka for some reason. I had never written tanka before. But I wrote one because I was so shocked. I didn't even know she had passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and four days before she died, she sent me an email and to another 
a poet, Tanya Kohang, and she said, I love you both. You know, that's how she signed off. And I, and I thought, well, that's odd. She's never done that before. But it was four mm-hmm. days before she passed. So wow. I really grieved a lot about that. And so I wrote this tanka, leaves not meant to fall before the autumn dries them, drains them of their green. Were you always golden then to have left without a word? That's the tanka that I wrote for Janice. And one of many, I have a lot of women of color primarily who are, mm-hmm. who are influences on me. Uh, I love Nikki Finney. I love, uh, well, Minnie Bruce Pratt is not a woman of color, but I don't think mm-hmm. anybody writes love poetry like she does. Just right. great. And, well, and I makes... love Robert Frost. I love a lot of the old greats, you know. <laughs> wow. You know, and I don't know how you feel about revisions in terms of your poetry. Some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on it? You've published extensively. What is your take on revisions? Well, I think a lot of my poems come through almost whole cloth, not all. A lot of them do. But what I do is I think I have a certain musicality, especially in the longer ones that are more like sermons. And, mm. and um, I, what I do to revise is usually within the same day that I do the original. The original comes pouring through me, I should say. And then I read it aloud over and over again. I wait, I go, wait, that one word isn't quite right. That's not really telling the complete truth. You know, there's a word that better, better captures what, what that line is about. And so I'll insert the other word. And then I'll go back and reread the whole thing. And I keep doing that. I probably read each poem aloud about 85 times. Sometimes it goes into the next day or a couple days later, but I go back and and that's how I revise is by reading it aloud, and that's mm. just always the way I've I've done it. There's this one poem um, that's had quite the life. Uh, it, it was used. I, I read it the day after the inauguration at. Uh, uh, in Albuquerque's Women's March, and I mean, this, the cheers were just amazing. Um, mm-hmm. but it was something that we needed to hear, I think, and it also um, was used by the Mexican consul here in Albuquerque. They made a video out of it, but this is oh, one. Wow. I had these two assignments, Michael. One was to write a women a poem for a women's show on. KUNM where I was I worked at the time and Mm -hmm. I uh, so that was an assignment and then I had another assignment from the Peace and Justice Center here to write a poem for a traveling altar to the women of waters so those were the two assignments that were just sitting on the back burner I knew that I had to do it eventually but I really didn't focus on it because I've it's hard for me to write on assignment (laughs) but anyway I was going to the bathroom, I walked through my dining room, and all of a sudden, these lines just came through. 
Women, when we rise, we rise heaving. And as soon as I heard that, you know, that line that came through, I said, okay, I'm not going to bed. I'm writing a poem. And this is what came through. I don't know if you'd like to hear the poem, but... Of course, of course, of course. Okay. Yes. Women, when we rise, we rise heaving, panting, pushing, screaming, like Big Bang birthing when we rise. Women, when we rise, we rise against pain, through pain, through pain, through more pain than one body can stand, it seems. Women, when we rise, it's never just one resurrection. It's always bringing more life with it, pulling the whole underworld along. It's bursting tombs into seedlings and springtime and singing tomorrows when we rise. Women, when we rise, truth mountains shadow darken for centuries. First watermelon and high-lit ribs, plain as day for a hundred miles when we rise. Women, when we rise, secrets cry out from crevices. Sulfur springs transform to sparkling. What once was poison now is fuel for still more rising when we rise. Women, when we rise, there is no wind can take us down, tethered as we are to moon and mystery. Women, when we rise, all else is trifled, all the foulest deeds of greed and war, all fears that spawn them gone when women find their power. Women, when we rise, we rise together, out of bones unnamed and cries forgotten, bonded to ourselves like witch to stake, like slave to chain, like Hiroshima vapor to the stone, like water's blood to desert sand. But when we rise, we bring them every soul from the first mother forward, and goddess breath will roar from us forever when we rise. Women, when we rise, we must not, cannot, will not be put down again. When women rise, when women, women rise. Bravo. (laughs) Bravo. Oh, there is so much emotion in your work. That fills me up. Well, well, I think it's come, that's one of the benefits I got growing up in the Pilgrim Holiness Church is that if you didn't emote, you should just sit down because you're not filled with the Spirit. <laughs> yes, yes. And so I can understand that's why that. I say some of, some of my poems have that cadence. It's almost like a gospel mm-hmm. preacher. Yes, it is. Well, do you think that someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? Uh, I think so. I think as long as they're telling the truth, as long as, the, as it's the truth, like it's true to, the, to, to whatever they're talking about, it's true. Mm-hmm. And, and even if they're seeing it from a different angle than most people do, um, you know, that they can reveal what they're seeing and, and it's the truth. You know, in, in this age of deception, and, and marketing ploys and computer logarithms to try to decide what kind of person you are, so what you're going to be fed on social media. And there's people calling 
actual news, fake news, and calling lies the truth. And it's so confusing. But a yes. poet never has to worry about that. If you listen to poetry, you're going to hear the truth. The truth of the human condition, for example, that's the main thing. And that often does mm-hmm. involve emotions, whether it's grief or whether it's you know joy or whether it's disappointment or uh, you know, forgiveness or whatever it is, you know, it's going to be the truth. And mm. you know, I think that we need poets to tell us the truth, to keep telling us the truth, not only about, you know, about, uh, well, uh, put it this way, we need to be told again and again and again, especially now when we have weaponry that could destroy the earth, when we're destroying the earth, with our pollution and so on, we need poets to tell us how glorious we are. We don't want an apocalypse, okay? We want our children and our grandchildren to get through just like our ancestors wanted us to be here. We need to feel the same way because we have such amazing art and architecture and all sorts of things, philosophies that human beings have come up with. You know, and that's a beautiful thing, and we need to elevate people to go to the best in their nature. You know, so we need poets to tell the truth about the beauty of humanity. But we also need Mm. poets to tell the truth about the insignificance of humanity in terms of the greater scope of the universe. You know, when you go up in an airplane, how many human beings do you see? None. Okay, because we're invisible at that height. And that's barely going out. That's not even leaving our atmosphere. And we still are invisible. We're like amoeba. So, you know, it's kind of like the Japanese and Chinese when they paint landscapes. You know, the human being is this tiny little thing walking along with his donkey or something. And the mountain is enormous. You know, it takes up almost the whole whole, uh, canvas or the whole screen. And, And... So I think that's important, too. So we need to tell the truth from all angles. You know, you're wonderful. You're human. Celebrate your opportunity to be alive on this planet and to to create and to love and all of that. And to be in community, all those things are beautiful. But also, don't get so big that you think, you know, you need to rule the world. You need to be Donald Trump or Putin or whomever. You know, Mm -hmm. because you're not so big. You're an invisible little creature from outer space. (laughs) Well, you know, actually, you stole one of my questions. Uh, Uh The question is, and you've answered it, but what is the role of a poet in modern-day society? And as you said, to tell the truth over and over and over again. I like that statement so much. I like that. Wow. Let's take a brief break, Mary. Hmm? Let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Okay. Thank you.
again, I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with the incredible Mary Oishi. I have a question, Mary, and then I'd like you to share a poem. All right? As you think about your poetic process, what is the most difficult part of the process? Or the Mm, easiest, either one you like to choose. Okay. Well, the most difficult one, I think, for any artist or really any human trying to get along in the world is Mm -hmm. uh, to resist the temptation to bow down to the small God of what other people think. Mm -hmm. All right. (laughs) Let it come through what what is the truth. Uh, You know, we sometimes... I, I think I think we worry about the way too much. Like, who's going to publish this? You know, or or so and so would never like this poem. You know, I had this thing happen to me in 2002. I was I had been at the UN World Conference Against Racism. I was an NGO delegate, and um, this newspaper asked me to write an article, a retrospective, one year later, and I wrote it and sent it and. I was supposed to, eventually they were going to get back to me to get my bio and my, my picture, and they never did. And so I was very disappointed. And I called mm-hmm. a friend of mine who's a playwright, and I said, you know, can you believe that this guy asked me for this article, and then he never published it? And she said, well, do you think it's good? And I said, yes. And she said, well, then, you know, submit it somewhere else, which I did. On her advice, I sent it to a feminist newspaper and the editor, I had just met her, and the editor got back to me right away and said, this is great. I'm pulling the lead article. I'm going to put, use this as the lead article for the next issue, and I'm not wow. changing a word. So I got back to my friend, and I said, ah, I said, you won't believe it. It got accepted. She, you know, I told her the whole thing, and she said, Mary, you cannot go in the toilet when somebody rejects your work, and then get all elated when somebody accepts it. She said, the fact is, you have a unique combination of DNA and life experience that nobody else has. And so you have a voice that nobody else has. And there are some people who are in a place to hear that voice. In fact, they need to hear that voice because you're the only one who can bring that message exactly the way you do. But She said, there are people who are not in a place to hear your voice, and you can't worry about them. You have to to bring your voice forward for the people who are in the place to hear your voice, because only you can do that. And it was just like, it completely changed me, Michael. Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, after that, there was this one poet who would get up and walk out every time I got up if there was an ensemble of poets. And it used to hurt my feelings. I was like, what does he have against my poetry? Right? Mm-hmm. And then the next time that happened, I was at a performance place. He got up and left as soon as I got up. And I thought, well, he's not in a place to hear my voice. And I read a poem called I Will Smoke Again Before I Die. And this woman came up. And she said, oh, my God, I need a copy of that poem. I need to hang that above my desk at work. So if I'm having a bad day, I can feel encouraged and go on. And a little voice said to me, yes, you see, she needed that poem. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you, mm-hmm. you, it's good you read it because she needed to hear it, you know. Wow. And so that's, you, yeah. Well, I was going to share with you that I'm afraid of poetic rejection. 
Did you have any advice mm-hmm. for me? Any advice? Well, I guess I guess that's that's the main thing um, is just keep keep putting it out there. You know, find yes. publications that publish work that's that's sort of similar to yours or has some of the same. Yes same qualities as yours and submit to them. Mm-hmm. Just keep doing it, mm-hmm. you know. Just keep doing it. It's hard. It's hard, you know. I understand. It. Rejection is hard. Um, yes, especially it is. because I was given away when I was six months old and then taken back and given away again. So I had, you know, uh, I had like two mothers that I bounced back and forth between uh, my my birth mother and this this sister-in-law of hers. And so, you know, I take rejection really hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but that that what she said really really helped me as a writer. Because there's somebody who needs to hear your voice. Yes. You know? Please share a poem. Please share a poem. Should I read the one I will smoke again before I die? Yes. <laughs> That's the one I want you to read. Yes. <laughs> okay. I will smoke again before I die, but it will not be tobacco in my pipe. No, it will be old hurts, consumed, ascending, whisping out into the ethers. It will be all those judgments of who and what was good for me in life, who and what was bad. It will be all those times I clung to people, places, and things, all those times I wearied and wanted to let go but couldn't. It will be every useless worry that never came to pass. It will be every quiet sadness, every disappointment, every insult, every shock, every hard cry. It will be all those false politenesses, all those heavy pressures to repress truths will reduce to ash and blow away, gone all posturing and strutting just to cover up the toxic shame infection. I will burn that shame to cinder too. My pipe will be fueled by all those barriers that kept me so long from loving this and that about myself. I will burn off all blaming, all projection. I will burn off all the anger and armor that came from dreaming dreaming myself small or in danger. I will burn away excesses, misinformation, medication, illusions, expectations. I will leave this life lean and burned pure to the core, taking with me only what I brought, leaving behind a simple one-syllable kiss that the face of the world will know only as love. My heart wants to say, Preach, sister. <laughs> That's what my heart is saying. <laughs> well, that was has, okay to me because I preached when I was seven. <laughs> Mary, has a poem ever humbled or frightened you? One of your poems. Ever humbled or frightened me? Yes. Uh. Not really, because I'm not afraid of the truth. You know, okay, I asked okay. my husband to go live with a woman, and mm-hmm. believe me, that was a truth of my life that I dodged as long as I possibly could. Okay, yes, but I, I discovered that what what Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free, is absolutely yes. 
the truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. So because mm-hmm. poetry is the truth and because it comes through me, not from me exactly, it's almost like a child, you know. You give birth mm-hmm. to a child, the child is part of you, and yet it's he or she or they are their own person, you know. And so that's kind of how I feel about the poetry. You know, it comes through me, and yeah, there's a little bit of me in it, but for the most part, it came from spirit, for lack of a better term. You're stealing all my questions. <laughs> the next one was going to be, <laughs> they say that to see the world with a complete honesty, one should look to comedians, musicians, artists, and poets. What do you think emerges naturally from your work? What comes well, from you? I think that, yeah, from me, well, it's my life experiences, I suppose. Okay. And, okay. And then my DNA, you know, so, mm. um, yeah, I mean, I think our ancestors are always with us. And, um, you know, so we have, we both, both in our, our uh, cellular memory, but also, you know, in spirit, I believe that our ancestors are here with us. You know, I, I, (laughs) I may be weird, but I remember when my Mennonite grandmother passed and I went to her funeral, it was full of, she had lots of children and lots and lots and lots of grandchildren and even more great-grandchildren. So so there were a lot of people. The Mennonite church was packed. And the preacher was pre- doing the eulogy and the sermon, and, and he said, she's up there right now rooting for each and every one of you. And when he said that, the light flashed above his head. And I thought I was the only one who saw it, and perhaps I was, but someone filmed the service, and when I got my copy mm-hmm. of the film, the light flashed over his head. It wasn't me dreaming anything. So, you know, it's not just that, but I I feel like, you know, that our ancestors are with us. The ones who crossed over haven't crossed so far, you know, that they can't be with us, you know. And and so I think that, you know, there's, there's the truth in the poetry makes it not, not humbling to me or frightening in any way. Because right. I've learned to embrace the truth. You, no mm-hmm. matter what it costs you, it's worth it. Please share another poem. Hmm, what should I share? What's on your uh, heart? Well, because the war is going on right now, I can read an old anti-war poem that's in a much earlier collection of my work. It's, and it's called I Am a Poet. I am a poet to reclaim the ravages of war, to amplify the human heartbeat in the chest of the enemy, to remind the soldier that he once was a child who dissolved into sobs at the death of a dog. I am a poet to reclaim the ravages of war, reigned by one race, one religion, on another, sometimes between nations, sometimes within them, I cut all skins and mingle the red blood indistinguishable on the page. I fuse all prayers into one chant of longing for a justice, a goodness that yet eludes us. 
I am a poet to reclaim the ravages of war, to pluck the child from beneath the bruising arm of rage, to pluck the woman from the path of rape's intruding missile, to hold them up in sun-drenched mist where they can sparkle golden and untarnished as the day they burst this world, a breath of God. I am a poet to reclaim humanity from the ravages of war, not to count the casualties, but to heal them. I am a poet and my task is immense. I cannot do it alone, but an army of poets can kiss the world awake. That's it. You know, you wouldn't know this, but every poem that you shared tonight I, I closed my eyes and bowed my head like I was listening to a prayer. Mm. That's how your work touches me. Wow. Well, that's beautiful. I've never had anyone say that before, but that's beautiful. Thank you. I'm mm. glad. I'm glad. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Well... I think almost everyone was meant to be a poet. Oh wow! You know, my mother, Tell me more. In my mother's, in my mother's country, uh, there was a time where ninety-seven percent of the population wrote poetry. It's just something they did. Like the Tonka that I read before, it's a five-seven-five-seven-seven yes. syllable scheme. But lovers, after they were together for a night. They would write each other Tonka. It was just everybody did it. And it's a, a very ancient form of poetry. And, and everybody from the imperial court all the way to the most humble rice farmer, if they had any education at all, they would write poetry. So I think if we all wrote poetry, first of all, we're getting in touch with truth in our lives, which we need. Uh, we're getting in touch with truth, and we're getting in touch with the rest of humanity, and sometimes even with nature, like in Mary Oliver's poems. Yes. And, you know, so, so um, if we all were writing poetry, there wouldn't be any war. If everybody mm. was writing poetry, who would want to go kill somebody? You know, I like that. You know, sacrifice themselves for a system. You know, mm -hmm. for an oil oil reserves or whatever, oil resources. I mean, or for one man to feel more powerful, even though he's an invisible little amoeba when you go into outer space. You yes, know, so, it's so true. You know, so, you know, I, I think everyone should write poetry. My project mm -hmm. as Poet Laureate is to... It's called Poets in the Libraries. And originally when I wrote it, it was right before the pandemic when I devised this project. It was to go mm -hmm. to Albuquerque's 20 amazing public libraries and have the poets from the neighborhoods around that library read there. And I encouraged people who had never read before in public. I mean, we had some pushcart prize winners. You know, we had some some very illustrious poets, you know, widely published. And then we had some mm -hmm. people who, you know, had never written or had never read their, their poetry. It was just like me back in the day. It was just lying in a drawer somewhere. And yes. they came and read. And it was just amazing. Like one of them was a firefighter, an EMT mm -hmm. with the fire department in a, in a rather 
difficult section of the city. And he told me mm -hmm. he started writing poetry five years ago as a way to cope with the trauma that he experienced all the time, you know, mm. with, with going to accident scenes and shootings and what have you. And his poem was beautiful. Oh, my goodness. I said, I am so thankful that I opened this door and, and encouraged people like him to come forward and to speak their truth of what he what his life was about, which mm. resonated with the rest of us listening. So, you know, you know uh, I really, well, I I, gonna... I'd like to encourage everybody to write. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to ask you, and I think I know the answer already. Writers and poets write for a myriad of reasons. Some write primarily to speak a message to their audience. Others write because to stay silent is not an option. Why do you write? And I think you probably said it 15 times, but I just want to hear it one more time. Why do you write, Mary? Yeah, well, you know, I uh, when my daughter was 14, she wrote a poem about Pablo Neruda and Cesar Viejo. And oh, it was wow. so beautiful. I said to myself, I said to myself, you know, why do I even bother? Like, why do I bother? This This woman is going to, this young woman is going to end up winning a big prize someday. Like, mm -hmm. you know. But but um, but I couldn't stop myself. You know, I've been I just have always written. I mean, my first my first writings were when I was about six years old. I would write parodies of songs like Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, or you know, some mm -hmm. song that I knew. I would write a parody of it, and you know, because humor was a way that I also I could kind of get out of. You know, it's music and nature and writing. So, and humor. I mean, uh, so I write some humorous things. In fact, when my when my collection Spirit Birds they told me was reviewed in the Women's Review of Books, that was one of the the main thing that the the reviewer liked about my work is that it had mm -hmm. there were so many that had a sense of humor, and that's what she liked the best. So you know, so I I used humor, and then and then through my adolescent years, I was extremely depressed, and so mm -hmm. I wrote a lot of poetry from that place of uh, mm -hmm. things that had happened to me as a child, and um, and then I sent one away to Read Magazine, which was uh, it was about nature, it wasn't about my trauma, but. I didn't think anybody would, I didn't think they would publish it, you know, so I didn't tell anyone. But my English teacher noticed that I had this poem in there, and she called me up and said, uh, Mary, do you write any other poems? And I said, yeah, I have a lot of them. And she said, well, bring them in. Maybe I can help you. She had done her mm -hmm. master's thesis on the, the publication of Emily Dickinson's work. And so, you know, she encouraged me and she said, you know, read a lot of poetry. And when you, when you are old enough to go out and hear poets live, we didn't have the internet back then. Yeah. She said, you know, do that. And, and she said, eventually you'll hear, you know, you'll hear things, and you'll learn, and then you'll hone your own voice. And that was wonderful advice to get at 13 years old, you know. Mm -hmm. And so... Yes. Yeah, so I I have used writing kind of as a medicine in a way, um, mm -hmm. you know, for for healing my spirit, which was really wounded a lot when I was a child. Mm 
And so, right. you know, my life my life as an adult actually I think has been a lot of a lot of beautiful things. Uh mm-hmm. beautiful people and events that I've encountered and and um my community here has now honored me with probably the highest honor I could get. I'd rather do this than be the mayor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I understand that. <laughs> Let's take another break and we'll be right back. Okay. We are back. Again, I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with the divinely gifted Mary Oishi. Our journey, Mary, is almost over. and I don't want it to be almost over. I really, really don't. But I want to know, what surprises you most about being a poet? Surprises me? Yes. Well, I think the thing that surprised me the most was how much poetry is valued and poets are valued here in Albuquerque. I moved mm-hmm. here January 3rd, 1999, and I came from, I grew up in central Pennsylvania where if you said you're a poet, they'd be like, oh, what do you really do? <laughs> and so, you know, it didn't, poets do get a huge amount of respect, um, yes. you know, because it just, you know, they were mostly, they call them Pennsylvania Dutch, but they were mostly of German descent, and they, they valued hard work, which, you know, I as a poet, for most of my life, I worked really hard and did poetry when I could grab the time. Uh, but now I'm retired, so that's super great, and I can focus on it all the time, or most mm-hmm. of the time. So... Um, so that was really surprising to me. That's one of the reasons I did the Poets in the Library series, because there's so many poets here. It's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And, wow. uh, you know, we could have a new poet laureate every month, and, and we'd never run out. Wow. Uh, so, you know, I was immensely honored to be this for two years. You know, my tenure mm-hmm. ends June 30th. But anyway, I've... I don't know if you have time for me to read like a one minute thirty second yes. poem, but I do like to end with something. I want you to I want you to read two poems. I want you to read two poems: the thirty second one and the longer one. Oh, We're gonna keep going. And 30 okay. This is one minute and thirty seconds. Yeah, it's called "You Are Here." It kind of harkens back to what I said earlier about ancestors. Mm-hmm. Yes, others get unearned advantages. You are advantaged too. Ancestor to ancestor, goblet to goblet, poured strength to strength. Through generations, centuries tested, multiplied, strength to strength to strength, poured into you. That's how you speak. 
walking into this life equipped. Yes, others get unearned accolades, but what reward is higher than that you are here when so many times you should have died in that dark room alone, in that dark room with someone who should have never been in charge? You are here, hearing these words, so listen well. What gold trophy glory can match the fact that you are here? Less equipped, you would have died when that crazy man grabbed you in the street, when waters rose, when fevers raged, when you got that shocking news, when you were completely betrayed, when your heart was utterly broken. Not even priest or wizard could take such blood-red sorrow, paint this day in blues, and turn it royal purple. You should have died. You should have died so many times, I cannot count them all. You should have died. But here you are, still here, still here, still dancing. That's the end. Oh, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to do another one because I think that's a perfect way to close. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that so much. <laughs> okay, we've got final couple of questions and I'll let you go. I know you've got other things to do in your life. What piece of advice would you give to your readers? Oh. If, if, if the poems, any of the poems, even one of the poems spoke to you, I hope mm-hmm. it inspires you to write your own. You know, you have a mm. life experience, just like my friend told me back then. You have a unique combination of DNA and life experience that nobody else had and mm-hmm. nobody else has. And so if you don't put your voice out there, there's a missing piece of the quilt of human nature, you know, that, that you can add and only you can add. So please do it. Do it. You know, write. Write your poetry, you know. And, and mm-hmm. don't worry if it's not, you know, if it's not going to win a push cart, you know, next month or whatever. Don't even worry about that. Just put your truth mm-hmm. out there. And try to distill it into the essence of what you want to say or the essence of what you want to talk about or the essence of, mm-hmm. of a tree, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. and if, you, if you do that, if, you, if you're truthful in yourself and let the truth come through, it will be mm-hmm. beautiful. And it will continue, mm-hmm. you know, you'll continue to learn and grow. I've been writing, like I said, since I was... You know, I had my first poem published at 13, even though it was in a student okay. magazine. So it's been a lot of years, you know, a lot of years. Mm-hmm. So just keep doing it. Keep doing it. Where can listeners find your work? Well, I have, um, I, I think the, the most recent edition, Rock, Paper, Scissors, is going, going to go into a second printing uh, the right. owner took over their press, and so it's not in print. I have a few copies left, but not many. Um, mm-hmm. But Spirit Birds, they told me, which is an older collection, that I think is still available uh, in bookstores or, you know, Amazon if all else fails. And um, But I think you can order it through your local bookstore. They have access to all right. it. 
It's distributed mm-hmm. by UNM Press, but it was published by a little press called West End Press. They published yes. a lot of women of color and more mm-hmm. radical, maybe, <laughs> <and> more political <laughs> type poetry. So, how yeah, can, so how can listeners you, stay in touch? How can listeners stay in touch, Mary? Well, they can always, you know, hit me up on Facebook. I'm not at my friend limit yet, so they can hit me up there. It's Mary Oishi, O-I-S, like Sam H-I. So they can hit me up mm-hmm. there. And um, I I do have a blog spot, but it, I, it's really hard for me to keep up with it. Apparently, I don't know if they changed something in the – because I've had it up there for years and years. Um that I haven't been able to put links up there anymore. So right. I don't know what's All going right. on with that. Um, so mm-hmm. I won't bother giving that. But, but if, you, if you go on Facebook, you can become my friend there. And I do post when I'm going to be reading somewhere and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then next year, UNM Press um, is coming out with a book of mine. And it, it doesn't have a title yet. But it's basically the poetry that I wrote throughout this pandemic and my tenure as Poet Laureate. There's a few that I dug out from before that that I've modified, um, you know, edited and made it more like what I want to say now, I guess. But most of it is poetry that I wrote during this time. So I don't know what the title will be, but you can check in with UNM Press from mm-hmm. next year, and I'm sure they'll they'll see it, or they'll they'll be well, publicizing it. <laughs> I want to thank you. I knew when I invited you that we'd be in for a treat, and we were. Yeah, the hours I was flew by. Well. <laughs> I was carried to places that I hadn't thought about in years, in years, speaking in tongues. That, that, that threw me. <laughs> I've seen that happen many times <laughs> growing up. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you for letting me read that. I've never read that to a public audience before. So thank you. A site Santa Fe put it in their booklet that they they had about really? that particular exhibit, but but it mm-hmm. I, it got rejected from my most recent book, so I think she didn't really know what I was driving at. Right, I understand because I think that poem is exquisite. I really do, Mary. I want to thank you for spending time and gracing us with your work, with your words, with your poetry, just gracing us with you. I want to thank you. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> I really appreciate <laughs> it, and I, I really – it was a delight to be with you. I think I maybe talked too much, but uh, <laughs> it gave you enough chance to answer – to ask questions, but thank you very much. No, it was yeah. perfect. It was perfect. It was how it was supposed to be. <laughs> Well, to our, listen, to our listening audience, I want to thank you for tuning in, as you always do every week. And as I share, as we end this program every week, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. All right, good people. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Mary. Good night. Yes, thank you. Good night. <laughs> good night. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. 
You can also check out the website at qlpor.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.